Hi, everyone. This is part one of a two-parter Ask a Fellow on iron deficiency in pregnancy. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Internet Work. We have a new Ask a Fellow episode on iron deficiency in pregnancy. Today we have two hematology fellows, Dr. Jennifer Teichman and Dr. Heather Vandermulen. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Jen. I'm a PGY5 hematology fellow at the University of Toronto. And I'm Heather, and I'm also I'm one of Jen's colleagues, another PGY5 uh, hematology resident at University of Toronto. Great. So we're really excited to have you guys. I think this podcast is going to be really awesome. Um, so with every Ask a Fellow episode, we start with a case. So I'm going to have you guys take it away. Sure. So this case is a 34-year-old pregnant female. She's G2P1 and she's 12 weeks gestational age. She has no past medical history. She only takes a prenatal vitamin. She previously was working in retail, but then was laid off at the beginning of the pandemic. Her OBGYN orders some routine prenatal blood work, including a CBC, and it shows that she has a hemoglobin of 111, which is normal in pregnancy, an MCV of 80, a normal hemoglobin electrophoresis, and then noting this like mildly low hemoglobin, but reassured that it's still in the quote normal range for pregnancy, the OB then goes on and rightfully checks a ferritin, and this comes back at nine. So she starts the patient on oral iron in addition to her prenatal vitamin. The patient has morning sickness and finds it really hard to take the oral iron. But after about 20 weeks, she starts taking it every day. She then presents in labor at 38 plus 3, and her hemoglobin in triage is 95. Her MCV is now 76. She has an unscheduled C-section for a concerning fetal heart rate with no excessive blood loss. And then on postpartum day one, her hemoglobin is 65 and she's transfused a unit of red cells. Great. So I'm just going to bring us back a bit. Um, I think this is a really unique issue for several reasons. One of which is that we're always giving teaching on internal medicine rotations about iron deficiency anemia and approaches to anemia. Um, and we don't really think about it too deeply. We might give people some iron. We might look for colon cancer in the right population. We definitely don't think about it uh, within a pregnant population that often at all, probably for two reasons. One, I think there's a classic stereotype of internal medicine residents just being afraid of pregnancy in general. Um, and the other reason is that not every place has ab access to obstetric medicine, uh, especially during the residency. So I'm curious as to what brought you around to this issue. So actually, I think what brought me around to it isn't so much seeing it clinically, because you're right, in internal medicine, we rarely actually see pregnant patients. Um, what brought me around to it was actually more from a research perspective. Um, early on in my residency training, when I was still like a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed PGY-1, I fell into this really wonderful mentorship with one of our um, hematologist at St. Michael's Hospital who does see a lot of pregnant patients because she has a, um, a practice that specializes in women with inherited bleeding disorders and whenever they get pregnant she manages their um, hematologic issues and she wanted to do a study looking at uh, iron deficiency screening in pregnancy across Ontario and I 
was really excited to be a part of this study. So I think what brought me around to this issue was really the surprising findings from this study, particularly in how common iron deficiency is in pregnancy and also how poorly we're doing at testing for it. And what about you, Heather? Did you have any particular experience that brought you around to this? So it's interesting. I kind of came into hematology a little bit backwards in that I knew I wanted to go into a specialty where I could do women's health. And so I went into internal medicine hunting for a specialty that would let me do that. And uh, when I came across hematology, I surprisingly found all of these issues in pregnancy and like Jen was alluding to with women with bleeding disorders um, and just found that it was a really uh, unique opportunity to kind of link internal medicine um, with a an advocacy role for women's health and so uh, that's how I ended up in hematology and once I was there I went looking for mentorship and supervisors uh, for research projects similar to Jen um, uh, for hematologists that have that interest as well and um, so I've been doing it from both the clinical and from the research side and then I'm going to be doing um, a fellowship in maternal fetal uh, hematology so that's kind of my path to this topic. And I think I'll just plug here the importance of mentorship as you guys have obviously alluded to and really helping not only clarify maybe some of your interests but also introducing you to different worlds of medicine that maybe you otherwise uh, would not have seen in the past. Um, And I think all of us can attest to that. So does, does iron deficiency without anemia matter or do we really, are we looking for iron deficiency anemia um, in pregnancy? So iron deficiency anemia is bad. There's no question. Like when you have severe anemia in pregnancy, which is like a hemoglobin less than 70, you have an over twofold risk of maternal death. You have more blood transfusions, more postpartum depression. Like for sure, iron deficiency anemia is bad. But iron deficiency without anemia is also really bad. Um, Of course, when you have first trimester iron deficiency, that predicts later anemia and all of its problems. But even if you never become anemic and you just have iron deficiency, that has problems in and of itself. And what mainly it links to is uh, in pregnancy specifically, you have neonatal iron deficiency. So when moms are iron deficient, the babe is born iron deficient often as well. And that has long-term cognitive and behavioral outcomes that actually don't go away even if you supplement the newborn with iron. So what it kind of makes us think is that there's probably this critical period when the baby's brain is developing that you need iron available and you know you can't go back in time and replace that iron outside of that critical period. And then anyone who's been iron deficient will attest even without anemia Iron deficiency can cause brain fog, it can cause fatigue. And these are symptoms that when you're pregnant, you're already struggling with. So it's just like, you know, an added burden and added symptoms of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. 
So how common is iron deficiency in pregnancy then? Extremely common, frighteningly common. Um, when I started off on this study, I had a number in my head that I thought we'd come up with. I thought it would be like maybe 10% of women or 20% of women, but we found that 50% of women in our cohort, which was spanning, you know, a good portion of the province, 50% of pregnant women were iron deficient. And actually in some data that comes out of St. Michael's hospital, based on a single center study, they came up with a number closer to 77%. And what's worse, we found that almost a quarter of pregnancies in our cohort in Ontario were complicated by severe iron deficiency. So that's a ferritin less than 15. So actually, I think, and this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think you could argue that iron deficiency is actually a pandemic in pregnancy. I think it's also worth noting, too, that the prevalence of iron deficiency increases in pregnancy across the different trimesters. But... When you actually think about it, it shouldn't be that surprising that there's so much iron deficiency in pregnancy. Because when you think about it, it takes a gram of iron to make a baby. And to put that into perspective, that's the equivalent of 177 stakes worth of iron. So knowing that then, is ferritin part of normal prenatal screening? You would think so, wouldn't you? (laughs) Um, You've actually hit the nail on the head, Allison. It's not. And that's really a big problem. So right now in Ontario, from the data that we came up with, about 60% of pregnant women have a ferritin checked in pregnancy. So there's lots of room for improvement there. There's a lot of reasons why we think it's not happening more frequently, but the most important piece is that it's actually not recommended by the SOGC or any other um, professional body that puts out guidelines for routine prenatal testing in pregnancy. So how should we test for iron deficiency? Um, And are there any discrepancies in how we're testing or what we're calling an abnormal result? Yeah, so historically there were lots of different tests that were used to screen for iron deficiency. So for example, most internal medicine residents are, are taught to look at the MCV. And if it's microcytic, then that might be a clue to iron deficiency. But there's a problem with this in pregnancy, and that's because the MCV can actually rise in pregnancy. So it's not really a great tool in this population. And then other tests like your serum iron, not so great because it's actually quite labile. And the transparent saturation is also not a particularly good screen because it's confounded by things like fasting state. So really a ferritin is thought of as the gold standard test for iron deficiency, both in pregnancy and in non-pregnant patients. And also like a drop in hemoglobin is a late manifestation of iron deficiency. Remember, iron does a lot more than just build red blood cells. It's also key to like any cellular metabolism. So when you're building a baby and you have a baby on board, You don't want to wait for the iron to get so low that your hemoglobin drops. You need it there and available to build that fetus. And I think what's more controversial, and Allison, you kind of hinted at this in terms of what a normal ferritin is. To be honest, even hematologists will disagree on this. But by and large, most hematologists would agree that a lower limit of 30 would be considered the lower limit of normal. And this comes from some data that shows that using a a ferritin less than 30 has a sensitivity of about 92%, 
uh, for iron deficiency, a specificity of 98%, which gives you a positive predictive value of 98%. So that's, that's a pretty good test to use to rule in iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, um, we talked a little, you guys talked a little bit about not using things like transferrin saturation, which is funny because in the inpatient population, that is mostly what we're using. Um, so I guess we're speaking mostly to sort of the outpatient setting there where the likelihood of a ferritin being an acute phase reactant is less likely. Totally. Yeah, that's a great point. The, um, the other thing I will say too is, isn't it interesting that when you order an iron panel at most of the hospitals that we train at, you get a serum iron, a transparent saturation, and a TIBC, but you have to order your ferritin separately. So I think this is not just a problem of kind of educating the, you know, incoming cohort of seem to be independently practicing physicians, but it's also a question about laboratory utilization and how we set up our own laboratory systems to provide the best care to our patients. So you guys talked a little bit about how there isn't actually a recommended screening coming out of the societies or in guidelines or in consensus statements. Um, But sort of based on what you guys know and what you've studied, is there a time where we should be screening patients for iron deficiency? And is there an optimal time for that? So yeah, this is a really problematic topic. And you know, historically, there's been a lot of reluctance to put ferritin testing into routine guidelines. And part of that comes from a lack of data. And I think in medicine, when we don't have a lot of data on something, we don't like to make a guideline about it. And fair enough. But um, this has resulted, I think, in a lot of suffering, to be honest, um, of pregnant women, um, because they aren't getting tested as a result um, from people who understandably follow guidelines. Um, So we don't have a lot of data to inform this recommendation, but what I've seen clinically and and I think what's becoming more um, in favor is to check a ferritin early in pregnancy. And like we talked about, you have that window where you can actually fix the problem. And so you want to fix uh, iron deficiency early in pregnancy before that brain is developing. Um, But the other thing is having a normal ferritin early in pregnancy doesn't mean that you're not going to become iron deficient later. Remember we talked about those 177 stakes, like you burn through your iron reserve pretty quickly in pregnancy, uh, especially if it's low to begin with. So if a woman is describing um, or a pregnant patient is describing symptoms of iron deficiency, so they're getting really fatigued, they're craving ice, they're having restless legs, those kinds of symptoms, um, I would just say, like have a very low threshold, repeat the ferritin. Even if it was normal in the first trimester, uh, you'd be amazed how quickly it can drop when you're building a baby. So leading into that, how should we treat iron deficiency in pregnancy? So I think that depends on when in pregnancy it's identified and also whether there's associated anemia. We would generally start with an oral iron supplement if it's early enough in the first trimester or even in the second trimester. 
there's honestly no strong evidence for one oral iron formulation over another. But in general, we say that the iron salts are preferred. So things like ferrous sulfate, ferrous gluconate, or ferrous fumarate. Um, a lot of patients are told by either other providers or non-medical people that, um, you know, so, some of the iron polysaccharides are better for them. You know, I think anecdotally, some patients do find them a, a little bit easier to tolerate, but we have no randomized data that says that they are any better than the cheap and cheerful iron salts, and they're quite a bit more expensive. So honestly, just take your pick. Um, I think the important things to emphasize would be that they should not be taken more than once daily. And that's that's different from how we're actually taught in medical school to treat, to, to prescribe iron. Um, you know, some people take it, uh, some people prescribe it twice daily, but actually you're doing your patient a disservice by doing that. And that's because each dose of iron provokes increases in hepcidin levels. And hepcidin blocks the um, transporter in the gut through which you actually absorb iron. So if you increase your hepcidin levels, you reduce the proportional absorption of subsequent doses of iron within kind of like a 24 hour period. So really it shouldn't be taken more than once daily. You should also cancel your patient to take it with a source of vitamin C. Usually I say like take a swig of orange juice or take a vitamin C tablet um, because the vitamin C actually helps with the absorption of the iron. And also importantly, to take it away from any sources of calcium because calcium does the opposite. It inhibits the absorption. And that's really the problem with the prenatal vitamins is you're giving women calcium and iron at the same time. So it's really not very bioavailable iron in those prenatals. I think, you know, Jen and I both having gone through pregnancies quite recently can both attest oral irons are really hard to take. And especially in pregnancy when you're already feeling a bit queasy um, and studies have consistently shown poor adherence. Like they're varying reports, but um, likely around 50% of women that are prescribed oral iron in pregnancy actually take oral iron in pregnancy. Um, so really, I would also say if you have access to it, don't hesitate to progress to IV iron if you need it. Um, and make sure that you give the body enough time to actually respond to that IV iron before delivery, right? Because you want, you want that hemoglobin, especially if you're anemic, you want that hemoglobin um, to normalize before you have that blood loss. And so you know, just like a baby has a gestational period, a red blood cell also has a gestational period. So you really need to give it that three weeks to, to grow and um, move out into the bloodstream so that it's actually useful um, at the time of delivery. Thank you for listening to this Ask a Fellow episode on iron deficiency in pregnancy. Again, this is part one of a two-part episode, so stay tuned for our next episode where we'll discuss how iron deficiency in pregnancy represents inequities within our healthcare system. Special thanks to our fellows, Dr. Jennifer Teichman and Dr. Heather Vandermeulen for recording this podcast with us. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Leah Karinopoulos and Zara Morali and Allison Lai. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.